Max Lucado in his book 316 about John 316 has a great discussion about the comment people sometimes make that all roads lead to God. You wouldn't for a moment put up with a statement like that from your travel agent. Did you ever use a travel agent? Did you ever tell them, hey, I'd like to go to New York City and then show up and get a ticket for Dallas? And, and say, hey, what, there seems to be a mix-up, and they say, oh, no, all roads lead to New York City. It's crazy. If that's true of earthly destinations, doesn't it stand to reason it would be even more critical to follow the right road to get to heaven? You've probably heard of the Romans road to salvation. It's a set of verses from the book of Romans that lead a person to faith in Jesus Christ. The signposts on the Romans road to salvation are these. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, and Romans ten thirteen. for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so, step by step, uh, those verses lead you to an understanding of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, since we are Gentiles reading the book of Romans, we might miss the fact that this final signpost on the Romans' road to salvation, actually a quote from the Old Testament, it's from the rather remarkable book of Joel, which you might recall was quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost when God sent his Holy Spirit upon the disciples and the church was born. If you were a Hebrew or a Hebrew Christian, this would be an eye-opener to say the very least because it establishes from the Old Testament that salvation was and is by faith and that it is freely offered to Jew and Gentile alike. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord are Jews whoever's are Gentiles whoever's? Yes, on both counts. What is the one requirement of a whoever? Calling on the name of the Lord. That's a statement of belief, of trust in the Lord. No works allowed. What is commonplace for us was and is still revolutionary to someone with a Hebrew worldview. Keep that in mind as we examine the opening verses of chapter 10. Now, as we've gone through Romans 9, 10, uh, now into 10 and go through 11, um, some things are going to sound familiar to you. Uh, and I remember years ago listening, I was in my car driving around as a salesman, I was listening to Charles Swindoll was on the radio, he's teaching through the book of Galatians, and uh, you know how he can be really insightful. And he said, you know, sometimes studying the Bible is like eating a, uh, an apple pie, in the sense that no matter how you slice it, thin or thick or whatever, you're gonna get a taste of apple pie. Uh, and the idea was that when you're in some of these books or in some of these sections, you might get a little bit bigger slice, a little smaller slice, more cinnamon, more apple, less crunch, you know, that kind of thing. But it all, it's all apple pie. And so we've been talking a lot about the Jews and about God's plan for the Jews. And you hear me say some things actually over and over again because that's what Paul is doing. Um, if, if I ever get tired of hearing the same thing over and over again out of God's word, 
I remember Peter who said, hey, I'm here to put you in remembrance of these things. And then I remember how easy it is for me to forget these things. And so we're in a section talking about similar truth, uh, about what God is doing with the Jews. And so no matter how we slice it, we're gonna get a piece of that. And so in verse one, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Uh, I've indicated in chapters 9, 10, and 11, we're looking at God's past, present, and future dealings with the nation of Israel. Chapter 10 would be the present, and by that I mean what is happening in the time after Jesus rose from the dead uh, until he comes in the clouds to resurrect and rapture the church. It includes our actual present time, but it, it would include all of that time as well. And so let's start at the end of verse one. Paul did not consider Israel to be saved. That means, among other things, that a person was not saved simply by being born a Jew, being a citizen of Israel. They were sons of Abraham for sure, but not automatically spiritual descendants of Abraham. Most of us understand that salvation is not inherited. But many of us do come from religious traditions that teach it is inherited. And much of the world thinks they are saved or at least on the right path because of their physical birth into a particular religious or social situation. And so don't forget that. You, you, uh, um, I've talked many times about my tradition, my history from the Roman Catholic faith and you know the belief, uh, whether it's directly taught, it's indirectly taught, that you're saved if you're part of the right religion and born into the right situation. You might have to earn your salvation more towards the end, but you, you have a special uh, you know, uh, sanction from God. And there's many groups in many of the religions and uh, societies of the world who believe that there is a salvation by birth or by by inheritance. Uh, and so we take it for, we under, you might think, oh, nobody really thinks that, but we used to think that, some of us. And a lot of people do think that today. Paul wanted Roman Jews to get saved. His reasoning, his arguments, his explaining of doctrine, his use of scripture, all of it was with the purpose of seeing Jews get saved. We would do well to keep our spiritual focus on that which is most important. There is certainly a place for believers to debate or to argue about non-essential points of doctrine. But what is most important, what is critical, is that we minister grace to those who are in need of salvation. I know Christians, and you might as well, who spend all their effort and energy trying to get other Christians to believe non-essential things, the non-essential things they believe. Uh, and, and you know, when you talk with them, they want to talk to you about certain issues that, that really activate them. And they're, they're minor issues uh, that, that are not, uh, they don't matter one way or the other, let me put it that way. They're always inviting believers to change churches. They almost never invite non-believers to attend church or talk about Christ. This translates into church planning sometimes as well. A lot of new church plants are just down the street from another good evangelical church that's been there a long time. 
The new church plant is essentially a split because believers are leaving other churches to join. It's not a classic split, you know, where people get into an argument over the paint or the color of the, you know, carpet or something, uh, or something serious sometimes, and they actually split the church. This is where, if you'll pardon my slang, Christians are just splitting. They're just splitting their church and saying, yeah, I'm going to try this other church out, this new church plant. It's interesting, some in the church planting movement refer to these kinds of church plants as splants. That's what they call them, a, sp- a plant that's a split. It, you know, so there are real church plants in real places that need real churches, and then there's churches that just kind of pop up next door and draw from all the other churches because they, they sing 10 songs instead of nine songs. Or they use, uh, you, know, so, you, know, you know, that kind of a thing. And so people who are really into the church planting movement, they call them splants. Uh, and so, uh, interesting. And one of the most enlightening books I've ever read on Bible doctrine, it's simply called Evangelical Theology. Dr. Robert Leitner is the author. The content is superb, but what I like most about the book is that Dr. Leitner takes a doctrine like salvation And he gives a positive statement about what every evangelical Christian must believe about that doctrine. Because there is is an orthodox faith. There is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And there are things about salvation that every Christian must believe. Like it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, And then he talks about the different nuances of belief that uh, are non-essential to the orthodox part of it where Christians might argue. Uh, One says God is more sovereign, one says man has more free will, those kinds of things. And it really opened my eyes to the fact that there is a truth that we should argue about and defend but mostly we agree on that with our, amongst ourselves and other real Christian groups, uh, and yet we spend most of our time arguing and fighting about non-essentials within those essential doctrines. It really opened my eyes and helped me to be able to navigate the turbulent waters of everyone else's non-essential opinions. Uh, and I don't know if you realize it or not, but I can be argumentative. I know you can't believe that of me, but uh, I like to argue with people, and I think I'm right. Well, actually, I know I'm right, but anyway, but you know, I don't, some of these things, I just, you know, I'll talk to a person for a while, and then I'll just say, you know, what we're talking about, it's a non-essential thing, and, and they just don't see it that way. There's nothing non-essential to people. They, they think you've just said something heretical. And so a lot of times people say, well, why don't we do more with this group or that group? Well, it's because they want to argue about all the non-essential things and they don't want to agree on the essential thing, and that is uh, preaching Christ. And so the Apostle Paul never lost sight of the lost, neither should we. In verse one, you also encounter the mystery of prayer and its relation to evangelism. Does my prayer Save anyone? No, only God saves. Does lack of prayer, my lack of prayer, damn anyone? No, only their decision to reject Jesus as their personal savior. Then why should I pray for anyone to be saved? 
Well, many examples and reasons we could give. Paul prayed for the lost and we're told to follow his example. Uh, But one important reason you pray for the lost uh, a practical reason, which I, I hate to put it that way because it sounds like it, <clears throat> you know, I don't want to just pray for a practical reason. I want to pray because I'm talking to my dad in heaven. But a practical result of prayer is that it does put my heart in alignment with God's heart. Scripture reveals God as having a heart for the lost. And so when I pray for the lost, I have the heart of God. And I'm thinking about those who are perishing. Suddenly people become real to me. They, they are individual souls who are on their way to a Christless eternity. And I've noticed, you've probably all noticed, that churches have a tendency to become a stagnant pool rather than a life-flowing stream. Prayer for the lost helps keep us focused on eternal issues. I've started to pray, and I ask you to join me, that the Lord would bring many non-believers to our church to be saved. Just week after week, people who are just not believers at all not even the unchurched Christian, that's fine. Anybody wants to come, that's fine. But just that God would do a work and that for no apparent reason, people would get up on a Sunday morning and just say, let's go down to that blue and white building and uh, see what they have to say down there. Total, absolute, heathen, pagan, unbelievers who hear the gospel and get saved. Uh, It'd be very healthy for us. Verse two says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul was the perfect example of zeal that wasn't according to knowledge. Before his conversion on the road to Damascus, he thought he was serving God by persecuting the church. No one had more zeal and less knowledge than Saul of Tarsus. What knowledge did the non-believing Jews lack? Well, verse three, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. The major doctrine in the book of Romans, uh, the slice of pie that you keep getting, is God's righteousness, meaning how you can be right before God, how you can have a right relationship with God when you're a sinner and he is infinitely holy. And we've seen over and over and over again that God's way of righteousness is to declare a believing sinner righteous based on faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You believe Jesus, that he is your savior and substitute, the sacrifice for your sin, and God accounts it to you for righteousness and he declares you legally righteous It's as if you'd never sinned. Uh, He hasn't made you righteous because we still have to have a walk of sanctification and until we're glorified and in our final state, we'll never be perfect until then, but he declares you righteous. The Jews were ignorant of God's righteousness. There are two ways, at least, that we can understand this. The word ignorant might be indicating a lack of understanding. I can be ignorant of something uh, not willfully, but just because I don't know about it. In fact, I'm, I find that a lot of times in my life. Maybe you don't, but uh, every day I'm thinking, how could I be 56 years old and not know that? It's, it's pretty sad. But uh, there's, there's an ignorance where you just don't know. Paul was writing to give them the understanding that God's righteousness must be received by faith. And so uh, there are those who they just don't know. At the same time, there were always Jews who understood that God must declare you righteous, 
That salvation was by grace through faith and not by works. And Paul was able to show them from their own Old Testament scriptures, their Hebrew scriptures, that that was always true. And now with the preaching of the gospel, there was evidence that Gentiles were getting saved by grace through faith. And so any further ignorance had to be willful. And so maybe they didn't really know, but now it was being explained and it was there all along in the Hebrew scriptures and they saw evidence of it. When the Gentiles got saved, it was positive, genuine evidence that God, uh, God's way of righteousness was by uh, declaring a person righteous. Peter went to the house of Cornelius and while he was speaking, the scripture says the Holy Spirit fell upon the household of Cornelius and it became obvious and evident that those Gentiles were saved. And they went to the, uh, when they were at the council at Jerusalem there to talk about, hey, how is it that a person gets saved? And the Judaizers wanted to say they have to convert to Judaism. The, you know, Peter was one of the witnesses who said, we just preached the word and Gentiles got saved. And we need to get saved just like they get saved. And so it, it was becoming obvious, uh, you know, in, in so many ways that God's way of righteousness was to declare a believing sinner righteous based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, the truth is, People start out ignorant because they don't understand. Then after the gospel is presented to them, many of them choose to be willfully ignorant, thinking they can get to heaven on some other road. They do believe that all roads lead to God, or at least they hope so. And, and you, you've seen those man on the street things, you know, where they'll ask a, a question like, you know, how do you get to God or, you know, some other question. And people, they, they'll give an answer and they say, well, I, I hope I'm right. Uh, and they're not really thinking. People aren't, uh, they don't, understand the, the, the uh, terms, I guess, or, or the, the, the problem with being wrong. And if you were on an airplane trying to get to a certain destination, whenever we flew to the Philippines, it always freaked me out. I, I don't know why. I, I, uh, it should have been freaky enough just getting to Hawaii, but I thought, you know, maybe you can probably get to Hawaii on, on instinct if you're a good pilot. I don't know if you can see it or what. But anyway, you know, I mean, you don't, you don't have to be far off on your compass or whatever it is they use to, to not make the Philippines. You know what I mean? I, I mean, you, you, you've got to be on the right course. And so if they did a man on the street, a pilot on the street, what are you trusting in to get to the Philippines? Ah, just instinct. I kind of feel the wind, you know, and I bank left and I bank right and hopefully I'll get there. Hey, you don't want a pilot like that. I always kind of hang out, you know, the pilot. If, if you're in the right place, you can see the pilot and the crew when they come in. And, and, and if you're not too obvious, you can walk by them and sniff for alcohol. But anyway, uh, I don't like to fly. I mean, it's, it's just weird. It's one of those weird things. I know it's safer than, you know, sitting here, uh, but uh, it, it probably is, but uh, I just don't like it, and too many things can go wrong that are beyond my control. But, uh, you know, it, you don't want a pilot who doesn't know how exactly to get to the proper destination, and yet people 
they're just trusting in whatever that they're going to get to heaven or that everything's going to work out okay. The Jews willfully ignored, uh, you know, the, the righteousness of God and sought to become righteous by keeping God's law. They refused to submit to the righteousness that God made available to them in Jesus Christ. I mentioned this last week. Uh, I mean, obviously, when they rejected Jesus, the Jews also said, we are rejecting this idea that a man can be declared righteous by God. And, and of course, from our perspective, they're rejecting their own scriptures. They're rejecting their God. Because Paul is saying, this has always been the Bible way of righteousness, You guys are the ones that are saying that you can be made righteous by the law when the law is a a signpost to show you that that's impossible, that you need help, outside help. God must become a man in, in order for this transaction to really work. Verse four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He is the end of the law in at least two ways. He's the end can mean he is the goal He's the finish line that the law pointed toward. The law, as I just said, would never intended to make anyone righteous. It only exposed indwelling sin. It only showed you how very sinful you were before God. Jesus just, you know, I've quoted this millions of times over the years, and it's so meaningful. Jesus said, you know, it's great you guys haven't ever killed anybody, but you've, you've hated people in your heart. You've been angry with your brother And when you're dealing with a thrice holy God, you've already committed murder as far as he's concerned. And so you're you're in trouble because you you can restrain yourself maybe and not actually murder somebody, but what goes on in the heart is is what God is looking for. And, And so when you read, thou shalt do no murder, you're guilty of that. It's it's not, you know, I used to read the Ten Commandments in catechism and think, man, I got all that covered. Except the covetousness part, I I didn't quite understand, you know, that, you know, even if you can get through the other nine, you get to there and you think, and if you're honest, you think, yeah, I've coveted everything and everybody and, you know, that kind of a thing. But you, you think, well, that's number nine. I mean, the big ones are on this side. Right? I mean, seriously, there's some big ones, the God ones, and then the manward ones, you know, we can fudge a little bit. What's a little covetousness among friends, you know, <laughs> among neighbors? And, and, so, and, and Jesus is saying, man, you're so busted by the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm all for posting the Ten Commandments, but not so that people will, you know, keep them but so that they'll see that they need Christ. Now, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness can also mean that his life and death and resurrection bring an end to anyone thinking they could ever attain a right relationship with God through works. I mean, seriously, think about it. Why would God have to become a man and die on the cross if there were any other way of attaining salvation? I mean, is God really gonna say, here's my plan, I'm going to become a man, I'm going to die a terrible, cruel criminal's death and be despised and rejected by the beings I created, be spit upon, have my beard pulled out, all of that in order for you to be saved. Or you can be reincarnated 575 times and get to the same place. Or you can keep these five works or these 10 works or whatever and get to the same place. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. 
Only God becoming a man could help us. And so Jesus is the end of the law of righteousness in that sense, and he's also that end for believers in the sense that the law is not to be looked at as a means for becoming more righteous after you are saved. We're to look to the Lord and the law of love, not to the law. Now this righteousness, both in position and in practice, comes by faith, he says, to everyone who believes. It's sad to me, and this is just me talking, that so many people read those last four words to everyone who believes and then immediately begin to define very narrowly who it is among the human race that can believe. They, they, uh, you know, I I don't want to be overly critical, but people say, salvation is to everyone who believes, but we know that there's only just a few people who can believe because that's the way God designed it. And the, the, the teaching goes that no one can believe. That, that's the argument. No one can believe unless God first saves them and then they can believe. And God has only chosen to save a tiny group of people out of the whole mass of humanity. And that's somehow a good thing. And so the teaching is actually that you are regenerated, you are born again in order to believe. And then you believe and have faith and... and um, it's, a, it's limiting. Now, I'm just here to say that I don't see any delimiting in Paul's thinking. I understand people who read it this way. This is one of those things where I'm willing to coexist with you. Hey, praise the Lord. You want to believe that? Have a field day. Be, go for it. I don't, I don't have a, I really, I don't have a problem. You know, I don't believe it. Uh, I think the scripture teaches something else. And, and usually, here's the, here's the problem. People who believe that, that more limited view of salvation, they won't hang with you. You have to be wrong. You can't both be right as far as they're concerned. I, I believe that too. I don't think we can both be right. I just, I think I'm right. But they think they're right. We can get along. And I get along with a lot of people who believe that. And a lot of people do believe that or some view, some variation, uh, variant of that. And, and that's fine. I, that's all fine. I'm happy. They're not happy. They're unhappy. They're always sending me emails and show, shoving books under my nose and arguing with me about scriptures and things like that. And say, hey, believe what you want. Paul said, whoever believes on the Lord. Well, yeah, but we know he didn't really mean that. <laughs> no, we don't. He seemed to go everywhere throughout the whole world believing that the gospel was the message of salvation and that whoever responded to it would be saved. And, and we can impose different theologies on what he you know, taught, but you know, that, and again, we want to argue. There's a place for arguing. There's a place for debate. There's a place for apologetics. But after it's all said and done, We can leave that aside and whatever you believe exactly about those things, you can preach the gospel as if whoever believes will be saved. And those, I read a a lot of those guys who I would disagree with and who would beat me in a debate, obviously, because they're smarter and all that, and that's fine. You know, and you think, wow, these guys are smart. But at the end of the day, they get up behind a pulpit and they preach as if everyone listening to them has a real opportunity to be saved. And they give the gospel. And that's what we do as well. 
And so we wanna focus on, on big things, on the major things. We have our minor points, you know, we, we have our view of the end times and you know, we, we know that we're right. Uh, but uh, you know, if somebody wants to believe in a mid-tribulation rapture or a, pre, uh, you know, or a post-tribulation rapture or uh, a pre-wrath rapture of the church, hey, great, we'll talk about it on the way up. When we're raptured before the tribulation, I'll just be smiling, say, hey man, I'm so glad we were right and you were wrong, because otherwise we'd still be down there with the ocean turning to blood, I, you know, that's, and so that's fine. There's a lot of things, you know, that, that we, we had, there's a place to argue and talk about them, but at the end of the day, we want people to get saved and we want saved people to grow. And uh, so keep that focus. Regardless of your, the nuances of your view, think of everyone as a whoever and preach the gospel and see what the Lord will do with that power. Amen?